A letter to the Galatians chapter 2 gets a safe place. If you, <coughs> excuse me. If you're, if you're new to the Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, this is a great place to just begin to read the Bible. And uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. You didn't bring one. All you need to do is grab your device and Google Galatians 2, the letter 2, number 2, and the letters ESV, English Standard Version. And that'll get you to right where we're at. Galatians 2, ESV. The translator heading, we're going to begin with verse 1 reads, Paul accepted by the apostles. And as you find your place, just comment, we continue our study of Galatians, a letter to a group of churches that the writer, the apostle Paul, had founded and visited in his first significant missionary trip in the first century AD. And here in chapter 2, he is continuing what he began in chapter 1, to lay out a rather lengthy explanation, to provide context and history as to why the Galatian Christians should consider his teachings and message, the gospel, as authentic and true as opposed to those who had been, come after Paul and were troubling the Galatians. It's his testimony, you might say, in, in chapter 1 and 2. His testimony, an autobiographical defense of his ministry among them, namely his ministry of the gospel. He is defending the gospel with his own story. In chapter 1, he argued, here's the flow of the letter so far. I'll bring you up to speed real fast. I, Paul, I'm going to write my own letter, was sent by God to you, the Galatians, to preach the gospel. This is chapter 1. That God, that is that God the Father sent his son, Jesus, here's the gospel, to live and die for you, the Galatians. This is the gospel, Paul says. This is the, the one and only gospel, not a tradition or a system or a human innovation but a revelation from God himself it Paul, Paul argues in chapter one it is God's gospel that I've proclaimed there never will be another one let all who say otherwise be damned it's that explosive that you might that strong live free or die Paul is saying this morning he continues chapter two more of the same guns blazing Anyone who is saying that Paul was inferior, this is what they're saying, Paul was inferior to the other apostles, or that the gospel that Paul was preaching was an inferior version of a, a cheap knockoff of the true gospel. Listen, Paul's guns blazing. They better take cover. Look with me. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I'll read then pray. Verse 1. Paul says, Then... After all, he said in chapter 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you. 
And from those who seem to be influential, what, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he was working through Peter for our apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. These are the very words of God. Would you pray with me for understanding? Father, Father, I pray you would shine your light into this room this morning, into our hearts. Send your spirit that we might perceive the truth, that we might receive the truth, that we might be conformed to the truth, that the truth might renew us and refresh us and convince us of your son's finished work. Father, we pray, we, we confess, we have nowhere else to go. We've tried everything else. Give us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is a very important passage of Scripture. Very important passage of Scripture. Yet, yet as uh, one, one popular, famous, well-known preacher, Tim Keller, he's often quoted when he preached this text once, he said, you're never going to hear it read at a wedding or a funeral. <laughs> you're never going to see it uh, hung up in an office or in a home, like a piece of artwork with calligraphy. It's never going to be there. No one is getting these t this passage tattooed on their body. Maybe, maybe down your forearm, instead of it is finished, you'd have even Titus wasn't circumcised, right? <laughs> it, yet although, although we don't plaster it everywhere around us, this is a very, very important thing that's being documented here. A question is being answered. The fate of the early church hangs on the results of this brief encounter. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Titus and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Look back at verse 1 again. Paul sets the stage. Let me show you. Verse 1. He writes, Then after 14 years. Just stop right there. Now this is a good one, and people have asked me about this already as they read, that, read this letter. This 14 years, if we just... Consider. Remember, Paul is writing an autobiographical uh, uh, defense at this moment. This is 14 years, not from the events that preceded in verse chapter 1, but rather 14 years since he began his ministry at the Damascus Road. This is his counting of his, you might say, conver conversion in his life as a Christian. I know it's a little bit obscured there, and trust me, there is tons of research and study regarding the dating of this 14 years and what is transpiring in chapter 2. And in fact, uh, when they visit in chapter 2, to be clear, it, it isn't, I, I don't believe the events are referring to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where we left off in our study through Acts to enter into this letter. This is most likely this is most likely, I, would, I, think, I think you could agree with me, uh, 
This is Paul's visit to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11 when he was bringing the offering during the famine, which helps explain that little comment there at the end, doesn't it? In verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's why he was there. So Paul's saying, after 14 years of following Christ and, and being a minister of the gospel, if you look again, verse 1, he has come to Jerusalem to ask a question. Then after 14 years, I went up again, it's probably his second or third visit, to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Nobody asked him to go. This is from the Lord. And you might even ask, could this have been Agabus prophesying about the famine? But I went up because of a revelation God sent me and set before them, <laughs> and you love his little parenthetical statement here, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What, what was his question? What, why was he in Jerusalem? What was he asking? You won't find it explicitly in the text, but it's under, under the surface there. The answer to the question is there. But here it is. What must we do to be saved? That's what he's asking. What must we do to be saved? Remember, keep in mind, Paul is not, not being, uh, or he is being accused of, of not proclaiming or believing or teaching a, a full gospel. He's out there telling people, here's how you can be saved. And they're saying that he has taken this authentic message of salvation and left parts out. That Paul is out of sync. That's, that's, that's the accusation here. He is out of sync with the other apostles and the church leaders that his message only went so far but fell short and that more is needed in his message in order to answer the question, what must we do to be saved? His critics say the answer is faith plus obedience. They're going to conform to the law. Faith plus obedience. To become a Christian and to be saved this is what his critics were saying. You must trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and become a Jew in culture and custom. Become a Jew in culture and custom. Paul, but Paul has been preaching something very different among the Gentiles. Actually quite incompatible in spite of how closely it seems to be related and appears to be, Paul has been teaching that to become a Christian to be saved and redeemed and reconciled and to inherit eternal life, what must you do? Paul says, nothing. Nothing. What must you do? What must you do to be a Christian, to be saved? Nothing. And let me just stop right here before we look at the rest of that. Does that make you uncomfortable? It does me. It did the Judaizers, the troublemakers, that were dog and Paul. Paul saying, his gospel, just believe. Trust, put your faith in Jesus, not yourself anymore. Turn from yourself and your sin and believe. The Lutherans are really good at this. And there's an old Lutheran scholar, he died like 20 years ago. He says it really well. Listen, this is what he says. It's so, so refreshing. We are justified freely. We're made right with God freely. For God's sake, right? For His glory, and he writes, by faith, 
Without the exertion of our own strength, we can't save ourselves. Without the gaining of merit, we can't earn our salvation. Or without the doing of works, we can't do anything to be saved. He says, to the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The confessional answer, the right answer, is taught by the church for 2,000 years, he writes, is shocking. And then he just writes on the page, nothing. It's It's so refreshing. Listen, this is here. He goes, just be still. (laughs) Just be still. (laughs) He writes this, shut up. (laughs) And listen for once in your life. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, just listen and believe. What shall I be, do to be saved? Nothing. You do nothing. As I stated up front, this is a very important passage of Scripture. And here's why. Because here, <coughs> because here Paul marks for the very... It, Paul marks... In the very first document of this kind, a letter which is more than a letter, it's Scripture, he records in this letter the moment from which and forevermore the church would be united formally, you might say officially, in one message and one mission. Here's where it happens. In closed doors, behind the scenes, in one mission and one message, they define it, they delimit it, they defend it, faith alone. Right? For everyone. Not faith alone for some of us, and for others, well, we have a couple extra things for you to do. It's faith alone for everyone. What must anyone do to be saved is the question they're asking as they meet in Jerusalem. And so curiously, Paul comes with a treasury from the Antioch church to to bless the Jerusalem church. What must anyone do to be saved from every nation and culture and tribe and people and language and time and season and family? All of them, all of us, nothing. There's nothing for us to do to be saved. This is the question Paul was asking and we should be asking ourselves regularly as well. Because if we, if we don't ask, what we will do is what everyone else has ever done with the gospel. To put it in a math equation, we make out Christianity to be more than what it is. Or less than what it is. We add or subtract to the truth of the gospel the old equation, Jesus plus nothing is everything, equals everything. So grateful for this moment in church history recorded for us. What Now, now watch. Look, uh, watch how t- Paul tells the story. Verse 3, the first of two movements here. First, first faith alone, and then for everyone. Verse 3, he writes, But even Titus, this is our wonderful memory verse for this week, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, hallelujah, (coughs) though he was a Greek. Now listen, here's the painful thing about circumcision. All right? Here's the pain. And and if you don't know what circumcision is, you can ask your parents afterwards, you're welcome. Uh, Here's the painful thing about circumcision. See, it was the high water mark of 
any man who identified himself as a member of the people of God for thousands of years. It's the high water mark. If you were God's child and you were male, you went under the knife. And then along comes Jesus, right, who claims to circumcise men and women, right? He circumcises men and women, as Paul writes to the Colossians, in him you also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And you can think of all the guys there groaning. What? It's a little early on this one. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, Jesus is cut off for us, the gospel says, circumcised for us that we might be God's children. In this spiritual reality, made those who bore the scar of a physical sign uncomfortable, okay? Uncomfortable. That's the painful part of circumcision at this moment in redemptive history. With it no longer being required to be saved. Listen, although, although Jesus never is, we don't have any record of Jesus talking about circumcision in the Gospels. Listen, circumcision nevertheless was an intense conflict in the early church. And so the controversy ensues. And this is what we're reading, verse 4, okay? Verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly bought in. And this is like a spy novel here. This is the controversy. Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, as in not everyone needs to be circumcised anymore. If you are circumcised, Paul's going to tell the Corinthian church, remain circumcised, don't try to undo it. And on the other side, if you're not circumcised, don't be circumcised, right? But uh, Paul says, <laughs> Paul, Paul writes like a spy novel, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There it is. There's Paul's motive. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There's this motive for the Galatians. And, and what is this truth? This truth of the gospel that no one has ever been right, been made right, been justified because they've been circumcised. Circumcision, Paul writes to the Corinthians, counts for nothing. And so does Paul say, uncircumcision. You can't be proud because you're not circumcised. You can't be proud because you are circumcised. And notice at that point in the equation here, women aren't even in the picture. Circumcision counts for nothing. So does uncircumcision. This, Paul writes, in no way nullifies the will of God to purify us and make us holy and sanctified and to be obedient, conforming us to the, His image uh, witnessed in Christ Jesus Himself. However, this is not how we are saved. And that's what's at stake here. It's not by circumstances, but not by our obedience. This is the gospel that He preached. It was Jesus' obedience that we would inherit and experience and be counted and praise god everybody in the meeting agreed look with me verse six he says everyone agreed and from those who seem to be influential what they were makes no difference to me god shows no partiality And if you just stop right there why does he seem to be so we'll say a little antagonistic towards what people think about other people and those leaders in jerusalem is because he's arguing that he is on equal plane with them 
He writes, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Add nothing to what I have been proclaiming, what I have been teaching, what I myself believe as the Jew of Jews. They added nothing to me. Praise God. The math held, right? The simplicity remained intact. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Grace alone, accessed by faith alone, gives us Jesus alone, who is the treasure of heaven alone. Now listen, listen as Martin Luther talks about how critical is this. So we have the reformer, and you might say the Reformation was lit on fire by this book, this letter, the Galatians. He writes at this point, he said, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article, that is the thing, justification by faith alone, which the church stands or falls. That's what we're experiencing here. That's what we're reading about here. The church stands or falls on what is being argued or, and described and debated and agreed upon here. He writes, if we lose it, we lose Christianity. If you don't have the doctrine of justification alone, he writes, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church ceases to be the church. And falls into apostasy, into false teaching. Because it is the article, justification by faith, that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Now as wonderful it is to read it here, we stop and make the observation that we are just as vulnerable as they were to do these kinds of things. Maybe not about circumcision, but we're vulnerable. Michael Horton down in San Diego, Westminster Theological Seminary, he writes, if we are not explicitly and regularly taught out of it, we will always turn the message of God's rescue mission into a message of self-help. If we are not taught justification by faith, that what must I do to be saved? There is nothing for me to do to be saved but to believe, to listen, and believe. If we don't regularly remind ourselves of that, we will turn this into, from God's rescue mission into a message of man's rescue mission. Self-help, we must be discerning. Listen, we have to be discerning. There is so much out there for us to hear I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this rich guy bought uh, Twitter, right? And, and it has become the greatest soap opera the, the internet has ever known since 2022. It's so exciting every day to see, are they gonna be there, or not gonna be there, who's there? And I heard, I think President Trump was just reinstated onto uh, Twitter, the Twitter platform. But listen, there, I, so, so because of that, and watching that, I've clicked on Twitter. I haven't tweeted anything since 2012 and don't intend to, but it's been really fun watching other people tweet things like, this is my last tweet, and then the next day, I guess it's still up, this is my last tweet, whatever it is. <clears throat> but there is voices speaking to us everywhere. And it's not all Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus, and then just a little slip of something, something. Some other thing. I need Jesus plus 
some practice. I'll give you one. Praying. I got, I, I got to have Jesus plus, I, I got to pray. I got to pray more. God, I might, be, I might be drifting away from God. His, feeling his displeasure. Why? Because, because I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. Whatever you don't do, enough. And when you add that enough into the equation, you end up with nothing. I'll tell you why I think I'm susceptible to changing the equation from just faith alone. It's because if I don't keep preaching faith alone to me, and that it's in spite of everything I do do, and on account of nothing I have done, I am justified and reconciled to God and forgiven for all my sins, It's because as soon as I stop that, even for a moment, my heart starts speaking, my head starts talking, Twitter starts tweeting, whatever it is, and guilt starts setting in. And condemnation for my sin. I become more aware of me than what he has done for me. I think this is why you could say the world is awash in guilt. Actually, there's a famous psychiatrist, a well-known psychiatrist. He wants, this was just so helpful to read this. He said, if he could convince the patients in his psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, he said 75% of them, he thought, would walk out the next day. Why? Because we're guilt-ridden and looking for an answer to the weight of our sin. gospel is so scandalous. It's hard to believe. It takes a work of God. Faith is a gift. You can't reason yourself into it. I will wake up tomorrow, go to bed and wake up tomorrow still, still capable of anything. And everything I do just adds to the weight and the list of sins that created me and produced in me guilt, but for faith alone. That there is nothing for me to do but to continue to trust in Christ. Chad Bird, he's a blogger, he wrote the gospel Listen, this is how the world works as usually is, is I have to do something. I have to atone for what I have done. I have to balance the scales, right? This is what he writes. He says, the gospel, the gospel is karma's worst nightmare. (laughs) Why? Because we get the exact opposite of what we deserve. We get the exact opposite of what we deserve. And that's what Paul came to ask. What must we do to be saved? And everybody agreed. Nothing. Jesus had done it all for us. But second movement in this text. Second movement in this text. And it gets good because this is where we come into into view. Second movement. We preach a gospel that is by faith alone for everyone. For everyone. Listen, the greatest, you might say, visible and I would say invisible uh, uh, division 
throughout the entire New Testament. You want to talk about like, hey, it seems like at times there's, there's two parties present, right? There's two groups of people. There's, there's, there's two interested parties in Jesus. And they were the Jews and the Gentiles. And that division is historic when we're reading the New Testament. This has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. It's deeply ingrained into everyone present at that meeting and represented by this letter and the Jerusalem church. It's deeply ingrained into them. They are, you might say, helplessly filled with prejudice. There was a rift between the Jews and the Gentiles. And somehow, somehow we had to find a way to keep them both in the same building, the same church. And they agreed, we preach a gospel that is by faith alone for everyone, not for one party or the other. Look at verse 7. They say, on the contrary, right? Okay, we're not going to add anything to this gospel. This is faith alone, by grace alone. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they agreed on that, and they saw that, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, we'll say the Jews. Verse 8, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And they had heard about this, and they were rejoicing about this, but they weren't sure about this and how this was going to work. They wrote, he writes, and verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, the leaders, perceived the grace that was given to me, they saw what had been going on, how God had been saving even the Gentiles. He said, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Listen, what Paul is saying the disagreement between the pillars in Jerusalem and myself and my companions traveling around the Gentile world had been greatly exaggerated. There was a, you might say, this rift among the apostolic ranks. Paul is saying, is a myth. It's not true. They were united. And this struck a fatal blow to the campaign that's been waged against Paul as he preached this gospel of faith alone to the Gentiles. For some of them, the Jews, they, had, they were carrying that mark, that sign, circumcision. And there was a whole new group of people flowing into the church. And God is at work. And the troublemakers are saying, oh, got a couple of rules and regulations for you as you check in at the door. And Paul is revealing to the Galatians here, oh no, one gospel for everyone, Jew or Gentile, one gospel for everyone, in spite of your prejudice, in spite of your historic division. Praise God. Because there they agreed, not only would we be saved by faith alone, through grace alone, but also that gospel would go not just to those that were circumcised, but I'm assuming in this room probably all of us, the uncircumcised as well. 
the Greek and the Gentiles. And we just need to ask ourselves the question, are we still in agreement with them that there is just one gospel for all people? Or do we have different gospels for different people, right? What, what demands might we superimpose upon the gospel as we reach people with the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel? What, what kind of things could, if we did the math, Jesus plus, probably for you it's nothing, but then for the person walking through the door or your neighbor or the church down the street, the Jesus plus what? A particular culture or practice? I can catch myself when people are different than us, who talk different than us. The, 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 the most striking thing in my, in my life where I realized how prejudiced I was, and you might be here, and I, I don't know if I was prejudiced towards any of you at any time, but I remember reading, oh, in a classic book, it basically said, you want to know what, what someone thinks about being saved, how, how mature they are in their reconciliation and relationship with God is, is how much they talk about God as Father. Kind of, you know, being a child of God rather than a Christian or justified by God. And I had friends in my life who were, we'll say, I would have looked at them and said, they talk very simply about their faith. They didn't have big words you know, nickel, they were using pennies and nickels, and I wanted to use quarters and dollar bills. I wanted big words and big theological terms, but I had friends who were just happy to be a child of God. Maybe it's, for you, traditions. The way we function, the way we meet and gather together is different. Different than churches in Old Town Orange, different than... <laughs> Def, definitely different than most of the church world throughout the, around the globe. What things do we superimpose upon the gospel and say, you got to do this plus this to get that? Sanctification and holiness and obedience. You walk in the door and you hear from us. Oh, and I hope this never happens. You hear from us. It's wonderful that you have trusted Christ. But, say for a lady, you also have to wear these kinds of clothes. Or, you know, old times, right? Cut your hair. <laughs> Faith alone for everyone. Christ died for our sins. The power of God resident right in there, right in the gospel itself. Not only for life, but for godliness, for heart change, for feelings change, emotional changes, for wholeness and peace. In spite of where that person is in their pursuit of change and sanctification and culture and language and even theological aptitude. So beautiful to see the early church, first century, link arms and resist the temptation to add anything, anything to the equation. And to add nothing to the equation for those that were different than them. That gives us not only 
instruction for us as we grasp and hold and defend and repeat and rehearse the gospel, but also as we interact with others and we discern and practice discernment in all the things that we're engaged in. And I love how uh, Martin Luther's same passage here, the, the Reformation is getting ignited. Here's what he says. This is how we can emulate what happens here as the church is lining these things out and declaring by faith alone for everyone. He, he, he puts, we'll say, uh, softness and strength together. And this is what Luther says here. Let it be then, as we consider their example, let it be then the conclusion of us all together that we will suffer our goods to be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have. You hear the Reformation coming here. But the Gospel, our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never suffer to be wrested from us. We won't let Him won't take us from us. And cursed be that humility where here abased and submitteth itself, nay, rather, let every Christian man be proud and spare not, except that he will deny Christ. And here's what he says. God assisting me, <laughs> this is a, God assisting us, my forehead shall be more hard than all men's foreheads. <laughs> he says, here I take upon me this title, according to the proverb, <laughs> I give place to none. Yea, I am glad even with all my heart in this point to seem rebellious and obstinate. And here I confess that I am and ever will be stout and stern and will not one inch give place to any creature. He says, love, give it place. For it beareth all things, believe all things, hopeth all things, endures all things. But he says, but faith give no place. No room, no wiggle room. He says, as concerning faith, we ought to be invincible. Remember we said in the beginning that, right? Does it make you uncomfortable to think, what must I do to be saved? And the answer being nothing. <laughs> concerning that equation, nothing, we ought to be invincible. And more hard, if it might be, than the adamant stone. He says, but as touching charity... We ought to be soft in love and more flexible than the reed or the leaf that is shaken with the wind and ready to yield to everything. In other words, as hard as a stone when it comes to faith alone, wide open hearts and generosity and charity towards all who are different than us, but agree by faith alone. May, may that be our May that be our anthem and our battle cry. Amen. Let me pray, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for recording this moment where we see the church, those first Christians and church leaders fighting for the purity, the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray we would learn from them have hard foreheads and leave no room when it comes to faith, but charity and generosity towards our fellow brothers and sisters and everything else. Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us by the message of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that we might be discerning 
both of others and our own hearts, trying to smuggle in works and merit and strength into the equation that it's your son and your son alone who saves. Help us to quiet our minds and our hearts to shut up (laughs) and listen as you speak to us the message of your son's perfect life, his death on our behalf, and resurrection to eternal life. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Make us a church where freedom, freedom rings every Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.